Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. Last week we were in Parshat Akev. Yes, we were uh, the beginning Parsha, the beginning line of the Parsha last week is about Akev Tishmeun. If you listen, and we had the second part of the Shema, the second paragraph of the Shema, which focuses on listening, hearing, and in that sense, uh, keeping and observing and obeying the ways uh, of godliness, the ways to live into right, ethical and moral and ritual and communal behavior. So keep that in mind as we start this week uh, at verse 26 uh, in Deuteronomy. We are beginning in this uh, part at chapter 12. We are beginning the largest explication of law that we have in the book of Deuteronomy. It is different from the law codes that we've seen. We've studied together several years now. Um, We've studied together the law codes Um, which often has a lot of detail associated with them that would have come out of judicial experience. What do you call that in law? What's the word for that? Case law. So in, in the law codes, we get a lot of case law. We get a lot of what would have come over time as different situations arose. The law, as it is applied, sets precedent. Um, and a lot of that is discussed in our law codes. That is not the case here. So this is not a law code in the same way. This is an explication of the law that is repetitive. It is. It comes back onto itself a lot, and it has a lot of um, a lot of uh, description that is persuasive. It's about persuading to keep the law. Why um, and the reason and how it's expressive of loyalty to God. And um, exhortation, if you will, to to keep the law. That is the style of Deuteronomy. So this is different from the ones we've seen before. And the longest, like I said, explication of law in the book of Deuteronomy. It goes from chapter 12 all the way to chapter 26. Um, So if it feels roundabout, and wait a minute, they just said that, right? That's the style of the oration of Deuteronomy. All right, so let's have somebody start (coughs) at 26. See this day I set before you blessing and curse, blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I enjoin upon you this day, and curse if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God but turn away from the path that I enjoin upon you this day and follow other gods whom you have not experienced. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are about to inherit and possess... You should pronounce the blessing at Mount Gerizim and the curse at Mount Ebal. Both are on the other side of the Jordan, beyond the west road that is in the land of the Canaanites who dwell in the Arabah, near Gilal, by the Terebinths of Morah. Keep going. For you are about to cross the Jordan to enter and possess the land that the Lord your God is assigning to you. When you have occupied it and are settled in it, take care to observe all the laws and rules that I have set before you this day. All right, so this is a summation by set in the mouth of Moshe. It is the summation of the preamble to the laws that we're about to get. 
So how does he conclude his preamble to the explication of law? So we said last week was about listen, obey, hear. What does this week's Parsha start off with? See. Huh. Why is that? What's the difference? It's not a command, it's just telling you to be aware. And how is that different from Tishma'u? Akef Tishma'un. If y'all listen and hear and obey, then why start this week with C? Tell me something about the difference between hearing and seeing. Because if you have heard, then you will see. I mean, that seems to follow. Presumably, Margot suggests, presumably, if one is hearing something, one is not seeing it. If it is oral, like if it is heard then it's not visual, then it's not something you're seeing. What is one of the most interesting um, paradoxes, not, I don't know if it's a paradox, um, in the revelation at Sinai, that the people heard kolot. They heard, I mean, they saw kolot. They saw the voice. voices. Even if you consider it to be thunder, they saw thunder. Right, that's one of the ways the biblical author gets at the intensity, the non-normative experience that was Sinai is that they saw what normally is only heard. So even for them, yes, if it's heard generally, it's not something we see. All right, so... He uses the phrase set before you. So you, you don't hear that, you have to see it. So if something is set before me, generally... It's set before me so that I see it. So the comment that I set before you see that I set before you, the blessing and the curse. So to, the commentator suggests that there's something inherently other going on here than just about listening and obeying. There's something about discerning the difference between blessing and curse, right, that is different, that Moshe is trying to, that the author is trying to convey. So, and then they link it to what comes later in our Parsha, which I'll explicate at that time. All right, so you've got the bracha and the klala, the blessing and the curse. How does bracha happen? If you tishmu el mitzvot Adonai. If you listen, if you hear, if you obey the commandments of Adonai, your God, that I command you this day, how does the curse come? If you don't listen to the commandments of God, and you turn away from the derech, from the path, that I command you this day. This is really important for me especially in America, 20, what is this, 14? <laughs> if, you, if you don't, this is part of if you don't, and you turn away from the path, that you turn from the path and walk after gods, what kind of gods? 
who you have not known. Doesn't say there aren't other gods. It doesn't say that's not a possibility that you could worship them and have it go okay. It's not going to go great in the land of Israel, for sure. But what, for sure, the call of loyalty, the call that Deuteronomy makes on the Israelite people is you don't get to worship those gods because you don't know those gods, meaning what have they done for you lately? Nothing. What did God do for you? Everything. <laughs> Everything. What did you say, Reuben? What brought you here? Brought you here. From where? Egypt. From Egypt. That is what is worthy of your loyalty, of your attention, of your obedience, is that force in this universe that has brought you to this place. The one you have drawn on as Rabbi Rami Shapiro says, to walk out of slavery and to walk into freedom. That is the only force you Israelites get to worship. So this is totally not intellectual. It's very experiential. Nice. Experimental. And that experiential. Experiential. That and experience. Uh, and, and, right. That the experiences that we had, and it's kind of saying, I'm you're not required to abstractly believe something because someone can make an argument for it, but you've actually, I know other places have seen you with your own eyes, you've actually experienced this. And when you've experienced it, you can't go against your experience. Well, you could. You shouldn't. You shouldn't. <laughs> so that Torah deals in the world of should and shouldn't, right? Often when I hear people sit in my office... For pastoral time, I hear them say, I should a lot. When it's not good, right? And I always say to them, don't should on me. <laughs> <laughs> I should do this more. I should do... It's like, what? Well, stop, right? The, the, should is a judgment. This is the realm of should. There is plenty of places where we should use the word should. There's a lot of places that we use that when what we're talking about is guilt. Right, I should means, but then let's stop and talk about why you don't. Right, because that's a judgment that you feel. Do you really believe you should do this, and you're falling short of that? Okay, Torah completely deals not with what can be, but what should be. And Yitz Greenberg goes so far as to suggest that every single mitzvah that we have, that we've kept as the Jewish people to this point, meaning it's still somehow relevant to our lives. Um, Every single one of them is about mitigating the difference between the world that is and the world that should be. Kashrut, for example, he says, yes, we're allowed to eat meat and we are curbed. Our appetite is curbed also by which animals we can eat and under what circumstances, right? They have to be killed in a humane way and you can't eat everything. Why? And Rabbi Yitz Greenberg suggests it's because it's, it's permitted right now to eat meat, but in a perfect world, the world that should be, we don't kill other things to eat them. So the, the world of mitzvah is the world of kind of mitigating, accepting that the world is what it is, humanity is what it is, and the mitzvot move reality hopefully one step closer to what should be. 
that's as reconstructionists up to us to continue the dialogue and discussion about what should be. Mickey, did you want to say something? Well, we're all, in a way, we're all Mavakshay Dara in search of the way. So make sure it's the right way. Right? Torah would say, Mavakshay Derech. That's a wonderful thing that you're all quest, that you're on a quest for the path. Make sure it's the right path. Yes, Laura. Um, how do you think this connects or at all with the idea that um, we talked about way back before, where the same thing could be seen as a blessing or a curse, depending on how you see it? So, you know, if, if God's saying, I'm setting before you a blessing or a curse, and it's the same thing, I mean, it's almost like before, I guess it's probably a different So where where are you pulling that from? That it's a it's a blessing or a curse, just depending on how you experience it. Yeah, Rabbi Rubin talked about this uh, a story to illustrate it. The story was where you know the guy didn't get on the boat, and he thought it was, it was such a curse because he was not able to go ahead and do his trade because the boat was you know the shipping for, and, and the boat sank. So really, it was to have be a blessing. So you never know in life what something might feel like. It's it's going. It's Everything that comes to us may end up having a way that we can find some other good that comes out of it. So there's certainly, certainly that is a part, a big part of hopefully what being spiritually mature and aware is for us today, is whatever comes to us, we can't really control all I would even say most of what comes to us. Um, it's about how we respond. I can choose to see this as a curse, or I can choose to find a way that I can make it, right, pull me towards the path of blessing, um, because that's all I have is how I respond, right? That's a little different than um, certainly what Torah is about, because Torah is a little bit more literal here that. You will produce by your actions either fertility, right? You, the crops will be good. The rain will fall. You'll, you'll have lots of babies. They'll all be healthy. There will be peace in the land. That's what you'll produce by walking in this path. And if you don't, there's going to be drought and there's going to be horror and there's going to be war and your children will be carried off as slaves, right? So it's, it's a little more immediate. So for me, what this gets at is... Is not our attitude about what we experience, but rather what are the actual consequences of our behavior? So, so for me, this immediately goes to the environment, for instance. When we're walking in the path of be living in line with a force that understands restraint, equity, you know, thoughtfulness about use of resources and all of those things, when we're living in that path, in this derech, then things are healthy and things flourish. And when we don't, when we're greedy and over-consuming and unconscious as we're consuming, right, then what happens? There's droughts and climate change and all kinds of horrible, horrible consequences to that. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, it's more about, about the actions that we take and the consequences from them as opposed to the, sort of the attitude we receive things with. 
That I could not have said it better myself. Yes. Um, Mickey, while you're up, would you see if you can rustle up a whiteboard for me? Whiteboard. My whiteboard that should be here? Care for any other designer? <laughs> um, and a marker. But, so, all right. So, when, where are we? So, 29, yes. So, we're going to come back to this at the end of our time together. Bert, you're going to remind me that I want to come back to 28. Um, when Adonai brings you into the land that you are about to enter and possess, you shall pronounce the blessing at Mount Grizim and the curse at Mount Ebal. Right? This was probably, we think, a ritual that was reenacted um, annually or at least regularly um, among the Israelite people was stand there. And here proclaimed, right above you, the blessings and the curses. Right? What if every single year we stood and listened to, if you make responsible choices, if you live into compassion and empathy and justice and equity and transformation and all of that, this is what will happen. And if you continue to drive your SUVs and dump toxins into the rivers, right, and then this is what will happen. And what if we listen to it? Children will die because they don't have clean water. They will die in their mother's arms of dysentery. If you can't provide mosquito nets for several pennies, here's what malaria looks like in a five-year-old. What if we actually did that? It might be a better world. It might be a better world. It might be a better world. We know all of this. Why do you have to do this? Why do you have to Why do this ritual? We forget. We're people. We have to be reminded. This is the entire point of writing it. This is the entire point of proclaiming it. This is the entire point of coming to shul. By the way, holidays are coming. <laughs> do you have your tickets? <laughs> So right? This, we need to be reminded. We need to remember. And we need to be called into that. We do that with the language, the metaphors of our tradition, the liturgy that's developed over time of our tradition. And we're going to see a little further on in the Parsha. And we do it by doing it together. Margo? I was going to say that... Um we're reminded of this, I think, if I'm not mistaken, I know in the Saturday morning service, the morning service. So we're reminded of it, I think, every day, if you went, if you did a morning service every day. And that brings me to think of how, how do the rabbis or whoever wrote the prayer books know what the important things are to put, to put in there so that, they, that you are reminded Every day. It's a really, really amazing point and a good question. And fortunately, the rabbis were brilliant and grounded and learned and rooted and human, right? I love Judaism for how human it is. It doesn't ask us to be superhuman. It does not have as its example an infallible prophet, teacher. Even Moshe, right, is fallible. Moshe doesn't get into the land. 
Um, for me, the rabbis are really good at reflecting and understanding because they were human. They struggled every day to remember. I was just at camp, you know, I was at Camp JRF on faculty, and we run services every other day. There's services uh, in the morning for the kids. The other one, we're on the, the basketball court doing these silly songs that also builds community. Um, so, and when I was running services, we got to the morning blessings, and the kids are like, they know these, you know, it's kind of by rote, by heart. And I said, you know, all of them you can watch at lunchtime, particularly now, but also because we're Jews. At lunchtime, the med call, right? Meds at lunch, really long line. <laughs> med call for dinner, really long line. Like every single one of these kids takes Zantac or, you know, like unbelievable how many drugs like these kids are on. Um, and so I said to them, I said, you're used to seeing, you know, med call for only certain people at mealtime. I said, but the rabbis, what you're holding in your hand is med call. And it's for every Jew every morning. I said, so I know you're used to saying these morning blessings all the time, kind of la, 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 one after the other. I said, but this was the morning prescription that the rabbis prescribed for every single Jew waking up every single morning because we're human. The first thing we tend to do, the older we get, the first thing we do when we get up in the morning is, Oy. <laughs> right? Right knees, ankles, like what? We, we tend to, we, the first thing we notice is, first of all, for me, oy, it's time to get up already. <laughs> and then what hurts? And what, like, this is just normal. This is who we are. This is how we operate. But the rabbis say that doesn't mean we shouldn't counteract that with a prescription. So I said to them, I said, look at the morning blessing that says, you know, thank you, God, um, that the rooster can discern day from night. I said, what it is, is as soon as your eyes open, the Talmud says you're supposed to say that bracha. Not when you get to shul. You're supposed to say it as soon as your eyes open, because where are you saying, thank you, God, that I can even discern that it's morning. That is a whole nother way to experience morning, right? That you put your feet on the floor, and it's <laughs> Blessed are you, God, who spreads the earth over the watery surface. How many people in this world don't have solid ground beneath their feet when they get up their world is not secure they can't be sure when they get up that they stand on solid ground it could shift under their feet like that so the point is that we forget and we have to be reminded and fortunately we have this amazing collection both here in Torah and then the generations of commentary on it uh, which I'm going to close today with in terms of approaching the high holy days right from here to help remind us, to help us remember, and the high holidays are coming that's, that's how we start the year together, is remembering alright, what's important, the charge to live into these values alright, 31 that we read, for you're about to cross the Yardane to enter and possess the land that Adonai your God is assigning to you, when you have occupied it and are settled in it Take care to observe the laws and rules that I've set before you this day. Yes? All right. 12. Somebody read. These are the laws and rules that you must carefully observe in the land that the Lord God of your fathers is giving you to possess as long as you live on earth. You must destroy all the sites at which the nations you are to dispossess worship their gods, whether on lofty mountains 
and on hills or under any luxuriant tree. Tear down their altars, smash their pillars, put their sacred posts to the fire, and cut down the images of their gods, obliterating their name from that site. <clears throat> Do not worship the Lord your God in like manner, but look only to the site that the Lord your God will choose amidst all your tribes as his habitation to establish his name there. There you are to go, and there you are to bring your burnt offerings and other sacrifices, your tithes and contributions, your votive and freewill offerings, and the firstlings of your herds and flocks. Together with your households, you shall feast there before the Lord your God, happy in all the undertakings in which the Lord your God has blessed you. Continue. You shall not act at all as we now act here, even every, every man as he pleases, because you have not yet come to the allotted haven that the Lord your God is giving you. When you cross the Jordan and settle in the land that the Lord your God is allotting to you, and he grants you safety from all your enemies around you, and you live in security, then you must bring everything that I command you to the site where the Lord your God will choose to establish his name. Your burnt offerings and other sacrifices, your tithes and contributions, and all the choice votive offerings that you vow to the Lord. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God with your sons and daughters, and with your male and female slaves, along with the Levite in your settlements, for he has no territorial allotment among you. Keep going. Take care not to sacrifice your burnt offerings in any, pla in any place you like, but only in the place that the Lord will choose in, in one of your tribal territories. There you shall sacrifice your burnt offerings, and there you shall observe all that I enjoin upon you. But wherever you desire, you may slaughter and eat meat in any of your settlements according to the blessings that the Lord your God has granted you. The impure and the pure alike may partake of it as of the gazelle and the deer, but you must not partake of the blood. You shall pour it out on the ground like water. Finish 25. You may to not that. partake in your settlements of the tithes of your new... No, no, no. You must not partake. Oh, okay. Never mind. Yeah. You will be doing what is right in the sight of God. Did we read that? Okay. Whatever. It's good. We're totally good. All right. So why read all of that together? Usually I don't get more than three sentences before we stop and have to start unpacking, right? Because you can hear the style of Deuteronomy is it's making the same point in lots of different ways. It's a very florid style of writing. Um, it, it says it in the positive. It says it in the negative, right? So what, what, what is going on with this part of the beginning of the, of the stated law? What's the big push here? Centralized worship. worship. In Jerusalem. In Jerusalem. At the temple. At the temple. <laughs> By the Kohen and Levi. By the Kohen, <laughs> Kohanim and Levim. After having obliterated right. everything else. Okay, okay, hang on, hang on. <laughs> <laughs> okay, 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 okay. So, what, so by centralized worship, that's here for sure. In Jerusalem, in the temple. Where does it say Jerusalem here? It doesn't. Where does it say temple here? It doesn't. It doesn't. The rabbis assumed that that was the place that God chose. The biblical author assumes that's the place. Because Jerusalem, Jerusalem is already established. This is written when Jerusalem is already established. Let's see, we forget. Lived history, Torah history. Very different, right? Mythic history, lived history. Different. This is written when the temple's already fully functioning. 
Jerusalem is already fully the center of Israelite focus and worship. So why write this? To justify themselves. To justify themselves in what? Having. But if it's already there, if it's already happening, what what, what do they have to justify it for? Did it take over from whoever else was there before? Did they destroy whoever was there before? That's not the. That's not a problem. I mean, for us, we're going to talk about it for us, but for them, that's not a problem. Yeah, but it justifies it. I mean, maybe it was a problem. Maybe they wanted to make sure, oh, yeah, we're here. We're rightfully here. So justifying taking it, but that happened a long, that happened right. way long yeah. ago. So yes, you're right. God chooses to put God's name on this place means it's divine and maybe will. for the future. You right. Okay. 100%. Why focus so much here on only in Jerusalem? people must have been sacrificing elsewhere some people are sacrificing elsewhere and this is a centralization of power this is a religious reform we forget that this is not connected to the other four books in the same way this is a separate scroll remember the scroll that was found that is Deuteronomy this is a separate movement this is a religious reform when was this supposed to have been? Oh my gosh, here we go. There is absolutely no agreement in the scholarly literature about when this is written. It goes from 622 BCE. Some people want to put it at 622 with the scroll that was found and authenticated by Huldah the prophetess under King Josiah. And Josiah has a religious reform. Some people want to place it there. Some people place it way post-exile. When was the Babylonian exile? 586 BCE. If it's well after the exile, right? So that's a span. You're looking at a span of 400. The, The scholars are all over the map about when this is written. But it's clear it's later than the other books. It's clear that it's its own language, it's its own style, it's its a new understanding of monotheism and the role and the distance that God is from the people. In other words, you're not going to have God walking around in a garden talking anymore, right? God is in God's heaven, further away, which is why a lot of people point to post-exile. If you behave and everything goes well, you'll be fine in the land. If not meaning they're retrojecting this, right, that they've already experienced exile. And they have to make sense of the exile. This is written in exile, trying to deal with the reality. Uh, I mean, what, God's not all-powerful and all-knowing and all-good? Then how did, how did God's temple get destroyed? How did Jerusalem get blown up? How did the entire population get right, carried off into slavery, right? So, or banished or whatever, right? So how did that happen? Because here's why. So there's no agreement in the literature. What was I saying about... Oh, centralization. It's a religious reform. So it's a religious reform. So why push centralization? What does that do? What does that accomplish? Uh huh. So hold on to that thought. For the priests, it's very interesting what happens for the priests. So all the people come together. It insists 
that you come together for certain things, for certain kinds of offerings. They can only now be offered in the temple. That's why I had Bert go on to say, you will not do what we do now in the desert, air quotes for those listening online, um, in what we do now in the desert, meaning, again, this is all retrojected, um, meaning in the time before this religious reform, which is everybody sacrificing wherever they want. Everybody has to come together to offer certain offerings now. Is this Jerusalem or is it the temple? Because if you're the Babylonian exile, you can't be in Jerusalem, but you you should live this life. Is it the temple or Jerusalem? So it is both. Once there's no temple, there's no access to Jerusalem. But they're the same. Those in Babylon dealt with fairly because they are in the temple, not in Jerusalem. The, no, the temple's only in Jerusalem. Yeah, but how do you live as an exile? Ah, that's where if rabbinic Judaism be, is born. If you can't be part of the community, how do you do that? That is where rabbinic Judaism is formed, yeah. right? Because they couldn't participate in the temple ritual, so... What do we do? What do we do? Right? So we can say a set of blessings every time there would have been a sacrifice in the temple. That's how we get three worship services a day and an extra one on Shabbat, Musaf on Shabbat, because there were three offerings a day in the temple and an extra offering on Shabbat. So they, they lived kind of a parallel life to the sacrificial rituals and rites, the cultic rites of the temple, but they did it liturgically. Is this separate but equal? Very interesting. That is a very loaded question, which at Purim, remind me to answer. (laughs) Um, There's a theory about Megillat Esther is actually talking to the people in exile. And saying, y'all like it so well in New York, when you should be, if you're good and loyal Jews, you should be back here in the promised land. Because remember, 50 years after the exile, Cyrus allows them to return. Did everyone come back from the Babylonian exile because they were allowed back to Jerusalem? (laughs) No. Life in New York was good. Right? The Golden of Medina. Right? They liked life in Babylonia. They did not come back. So there's a lot of, so for them, it was separate but equal. But for the folks who returned and were trying to rebuild the temple, you know, and, and reestablish the centralization of that um, place, they said 100% it's wrong to stay so, out there. So the rabbinic intellectual gymnastics here really allowed prayer to substitute for sacrifice. Correct. Okay. Correct. So, so here's what's critical about Jewish history. I was just talking with someone else because we celebrated the celebrated. We commemorated the ninth of Av um, in at camp with a very serious, amazing, amazing program that blew me away with these kids. Um, so, 586 BCE, the first temple is destroyed. 50 years later, there's a return, but not a lot of folks return. The heavy hitters, the people who had it good, 
They stay in Babylonia where they are living into the model of the Babylonian academy. How do you engage with all this stuff when you don't live there anymore? You intellectualize it. You engage in study, you in debate. What are the laws about exactly when that morning sacrifice was to be offered? Well, if you listen to this one, it's this. If you listen to that one, it's that. And then we argue and explore. And all of that is the Babylonian Academy. That's what they're doing as the life continues to go on until when? Yes. Yes. 70 CE. Because what happens here? Second temple destroyed. Second temple's destroyed. Now, what we, what we commemorate on that, on Tisha B'Av, on the 9th of Av, everyone is, you know, for, throughout history has been um, connected to the calamity, the korban, the destruction of the temple. That's what we commemorate on Tisha B'Av. As a reconstructionist, I'm a bit of a heretic. Because I say, yes, was it a catastrophe in terms of human suffering, death? Absolutely, it's a calamity. Was it a calamity for the Jewish people? No, because it forced them to hold tighter and want to not let go to their religion. And what else did it do? What happened was, there's no more temple. After this, there's no more temple. There's only what had been going on in Babylonia. Let us make no mistake. We are inheritors of this, not of this. We are doing today this, rabbinic Judaism. We are not. Uh, in other words, so, some people talk. Okay, no, All right. So rabbinic Judaism is born out of the experience of exile, but becomes the de facto experience after the destruction of the second temple. Had this all not been going on, we would be like the Jebusites, the Edomites. Once your high place is destroyed, your population is kicked out. The Romans kicked everybody out. They carried them off as slaves, right? Raised Jerusalem to the ground. Once your population is carried off and you're your place is destroyed, you're done in the, in the ancient world. You're, you're toast. Why aren't we gone? Because all of this was happening, and that's what we inherited. We inherited Judaism, not biblical Israelite cult practice. All right, so... Rabbi, it should be said that the rabbinic tradition, uh, after the destruction of the Second Temple, uh, even stronger because they won. They won. They were in battle for a long time about what's legitimate relationship to God. Can you have legitimate relationship to God outside of the temple complex, out of the temple precinct? Right? They, that was an argument until 70. Once 70 happens, the only way to be in relationship to God is through these texts becoming metaphor. These texts becoming instructive in acrobatic ways that I find miraculously gorgeous. They could have said, forget it. What do we need this for anymore? Why are we reading this? 
Why are we still reading in America 2014? None of us are making Aliyah anytime soon. Let's be frank. Why are we reading this? What chutzpah? To sit in America, Pacific Palisades, 2014, and read the only way to live into right relationship is to be at the place where God establishes God's name. That would be Jerusalem. It's big. It's important to touch other peoples and to create community elsewhere so it creates ha, a Ha, ha, Lisa, spoken like a good rabbinic Jew. <laughs> Because they choose to understand these texts as continuing to be meaningful as metaphor. They would never say that, God forbid. They would say this is the original intention of God, right? Because God knows there was going to be a destruction. God knew. There's, of course, all of these other layers underneath this text. I'm very glad that that's the way they and we choose to see things because it roots us in texts that have been studied for for thousands of years. That's a remarkable thing. So what do we take from this centralization? Lisa, tell me. You just hit it. Why do we Why do we read this if we're sitting in America and we're not going to be in Jerusalem? Why bother reading this? Because it's important for us to stay alive as a people. It's important for us to come together as a community and keep that healing of the world and good. So even though we now have prayer books, we have the printing press, which has never happened before. We have the whole entire morning service in our hands at home in our living rooms. There's something here the rabbis choose to believe that is still compelling for us. And that message is, yes, should you daven in your living room every morning? 100%. And... You have got to come together. You have got to come together as a people in one place. Should all of you be studying Torah at home? 100%. You must come to this room. See, there is an experience, an immediacy that happens for us here, together, that can't happen at home, alone. It's not that that's not okay and not good and not to be encouraged, but re'eh, see, means all y'all, together, in one place. That magnifies the experience that you have together, it changes the experience you have together, and it glorifies God and makes real the presence of God in this world in a way that does not happen when we're by ourselves. That's exactly what I <laughs> One of the things, you were talking about the prayer service and connecting to that, that I think it's unfortunate that some modern Jews have lost because we kind of reject the idea of sacrifice and, and all that, is that our prayer service, by saying something which connects to 3,000 years of history, that can be very powerful. By reading the Psalm of the Day that was read at the temple on the same day of the week, that's a way of connecting to history. And unfortunately, I think we lose that too often. Mm-hmm. You know, following up on that point, is it, is it possible that the message here is that you need community to a method for the transmission of values from generation to generation. If Dave studied alone in his living room, he would be Dave Stora. 
and at some point when Dave passes away, his interpretations are gone. It's only in this communal environment do we have the consistency of generations of purity of thought, rather. 100%. The Sfatimet goes further and says, why does it say there were 650,000 Gilgulim, like, like literally circles, meaning heads, at Sinai? Why mention that? Why, why, how many circles there were? Because revelation is not complete, says the Sfatimet, if one of those is missing. Because Dave's Torah is different from Reuben's Torah, which is different from Lisa's Torah. And if one of those is missing, the Torah, revelation of Torah is not complete. So that in community, we come to a fuller understanding of Torah cross-generationally. We have fantastic students at 90, right? And younger students, right? That, 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 that generational connection, that consistency, and yet the change in understanding, even when we reach 90, right, is still there, right, and evolving. Um, but together with those different perspectives is what fills out revelation, re'eh. The people saw voices. Making in, um, in Jewish communities around the Mediterranean, North Africa, uh, a lot of the Jewish community didn't um, didn't really uh, uh, they had differences between uh, what they how they felt about the priesthood plan, but they always sent their half shekel as a matter. Let that be a lesson for us. <laughs> that even though the people had real tensions with how the priests were handling things and whether or not that was the best expression of living into godliness, they still sent their dues <laughs> to the temple from Babylonia. What you said uh, really connected with me in, a, in a, just another little wrinkle to it was as a parent of a 13 year old and 10 year old, how my trying to pass on values to them is not always going to be heard, but if there's other, if there's a community that's, you know, reinforcing these are our values, these are our values, and they're hearing it from Lisa, and they're seeing Lisa's kids try, and maybe I'm talking to Lisa's kids, and she, and they're seeing our rabbi, all of that transmits those values in a way that the parent alone may be completely ignored, hypothetically speaking. See, it's interesting because, you know, if, if you hadn't detached the material from Jerusalem into the Babylonian Talmud, you couldn't have the flexibility to have communities to do all of this. So in a sense, that was the survival of Judaism, was that detachment. That's exactly why I'm a heretic on Tisha B'Av, yeah. right? Because I don't mourn, right? I don't mourn the fact that that's what's allowed us to survive, is that there was an exile. Or in Yavna. Exactly. And so that population that was in exile is what allowed, and the flourishing of that community is what allowed us to survive the Khurban right. in 70. You're seeing the blessing from the grave. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, way to bring it back, Lord. Is it the same way for this? Different from reform to reconstructionist and all of that. I mean, it's there's different the laws that change or actually the thinking of it from one the, the dip, I'm not sure denominations denominations yeah what about that well it allowed also a, 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 a revision if you want 
or at least different divination, but still attached to the basic Torah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. It brought some freshness to it at the same time. Yeah. Rabbi, I wonder if I could just say something that we, this whole discussion now reminded me of uh, worshiping and community and, and so forth. Um, when my daughter was bat mitzvahed a lot of years ago, maybe 38 or something like that, she was going off to Jewish camp for the first time that summer, and it was right when her bat mitzvah was in September. So she called me from the camp and said, is it okay if I change my bat mitzvah speech? And I said, Nancy, you could do you know, anything that you know, is comfortable for you. And so, and I didn't even know what she had changed it to. And then the day of the bat mitzvah, she just talked about the importance of going to a camp or a learning experience with all Jewish people. And up until that time, I don't think she ever thought about it. And I think she still thinks about it, hopefully. And it just, I mean, it just seemed to gel. So if you read my e-blast from last week, right? Pardon? My e-blast from last week was all about oh, yes. having come home from camp, right? The paradigmatic Jewish peoplehood experience for our young people, right? Because until one experiences the power of Keilak Dosha, of a sacred community, you can't get it. Like, why, why? Who cares? Right? Like, But once you experience it, it's like, wow. All right, let's go to 20. I'm going to go back to 28. 11, 28. About going astray, right? About, about if you do not obey the commandments, if you do not follow the path, and you go after God's asher... Lo yadatem. I'm going to get to you, Laura, I promise, about destruction and annihilation. And I want to close here. All right. So, and forgive me if we've gone a little bit over. But I love it when y'all talk. All right. So, first of all, to the point of the, and you have annihilated all of the peoples and all of their high places and all of their idols and all. So, Obama. What's a bama? Here's the shoresh in Hebrew. What's a bama? Bima. Ah, bima comes from bama. What does it mean? High places. High places. They were kosher. You could offer a sacrifice on a bama until you can't. Right? But we, we also saw the scholars point out that in the desert, actually, they could only sacrifice at the Mishkan by the Levim and the Kohanim. So how can it be that it says in the desert they were allowed to sacrifice on any Bama, but then they can't, but they could only before. So either Deuteronomy doesn't know that text that says they have to sacrifice at the Mishkan or something changes, right? And there's lots of explication. You can go to... Rabbi Mayer Schweiger at PardesUSA.org and listen to his podcast discussing the Mishnah's discussion of this. Fascinating. Um, but, but Bama as high place, it was kosher, it says here. You could offer on any high place, right? What are you supposed to destroy when you get to the land, Laura? What Bama, what Bamot are you supposed to destroy? Everybody else. Theirs. You have to destroy their Bamot. 
But in ancient times, this is what was happening. Every conquering army came in and destroyed the previous... Of course. So Israel's no different. Right, we're no different. Of course. What was Jerusalem? Somebody else's high place. Jerusalem was the sacred city of the Jebusites. Do you take that and you make it the sacred city of Yahweh? Of course. 100%. Wasn't it also the assumption that the people were dead? No. No? Mapitom. You have to destroy them. You have to annihilate them. The people. The people. Right. So it's, I mean, which didn't happen. So this is why I'm talking to Laura, right? It didn't happen. There was no conquest the way it's represented here. We have to remember that every time we come to Deuteronomy. The Deuteronomist is writing this because it never happened. He's writing this to an audience saying, had you followed the divine will and had you destroyed all of them and their high places, y'all wouldn't have Christmas trees in the living room. But you didn't. And now we have a problem. You're giving presents on Hanukkah. It's a slippery slope from there to full out Christianity. Right? I mean, so that, that's exactly what we're dealing with. So that's how I can hold the text is it, it never happened. That's A. B, what did the scholars who have worked with this text forever, what did they do with this, which I just love? What they did is they said... Not Yes, this was true one time as the shot, as the simple example of revelation, but God forbid we should think that God is so shallow that it stops there. This is an, a teaching for eternity. God knew what was going to happen in eternity. This is still revelation for us. What is the revelation now? If you want to follow the derech, if you want to truly follow the path of righteousness and goodness, here it is. It's written right in the Torah, in Parshat Re'eh for us. What we must do is we must turn inward. We must find the Holy Land within. And we must carefully discern what are the high places in each one of us. Where is our arrogance? Where is our haughtiness? Where is, I'm always right. And the way I see it is the way it needs to be, here and everywhere else. And we don't even take, we're not even aware of it, that we just assume how we see it is the way it is. We just assume the way we want it is the way it needs to be. And it comes out of not even intentional, but just natural arrogance. It's who we are. We're human, okay. But... To follow the derech, to follow the path means we must take time to identify the bamot, the high places, and to know when we are worshiping God's asher lo yadatem, that we do not have an intimate salvific experience of. These are our addictions. These are our TV watchings. I mean, some TV is great. Don't get me wrong. The TV I watch, thank you, yes, is great. That trash that everyone else watches, it's horrifying to me that it is. Right? So, right? We spend a lot of time engaged, lifting up and worshiping, right? Making, what does worship mean? You know, making all important, connecting to, directing all of our attention and energies and resources to 
God's asher lo yadatem that we have not experienced as what this yud hey vav hey business is. The life-giving, healing, transformative, compassionate producing force that helps us walk out of slavery every single day and walk into freedom. That is the only force that we should be worshiping, the one that you know. And that means biblically. What is to know biblically? It's sex. It's to make love. That's that's the intimacy with which you know you'd hey vav hey. It's that intimate. It's that life-saving. That is the only force we should be directing our money, our energy, our time, our attention, our intention to. And that is why this Rosh Hashanah, we come together. We come together then and at Yom Kippur in order to collectively intensify our commitment and experience of tearing down the high places, the arrogance, the hardness, the cynicism, the ennui, the despair, the criticism, the judgment of self and others. That's just idolatry. And to return to that Place, the Kodesh Kedoshim, the Holy of Holies, where God establishes God's self in each one of us so that we can this year live out of that place and create a world reflective in a different way of God's kavod, of God's presence, and God's glory. Shabbat Shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.